Holla! Welcome back to episode 4 of Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. Every episode I, Eddie Hurst, you know from the title of the show, read a chapter of H.G. Wells' sci-fi classic, The War of the Worlds. From the other half of the show title. This week, chapter 4, The Cylinder Opens. And may I just say, finally... You know, I mean, for a book that's all about a war of worlds, there's been about as much war here as a peace summit for ducklings. You know what I'm saying? There's been about as much war here as a gig for Edwin Starr, where he refuses to play his number one hit single. Right? There's been about as much war here as at a psychological experiment where children have been taken from birth and never shown the concept of conflict or battle or war. What I'm trying to say is there's been very little war. And I know, like, you want to build up her stuff before it kicks off, but there's been enough build-up here to make a great bloody wall of China. The anticipation, ladies and gentlemen, is palpable. Palp-able. Anyway, quick recap. Anna Rea saw with the astronomer Ogilvy a falling star, only to discover it land in Horsell Common, near Woking, Chubham and Chertsey. Duh-duh. After Ogilvy tells his neighbour Henderson, a London journalist, who's all like, what? And half deaf, they go and check it out. And then Henderson, he goes and spills the beans with a telegraph to the newspaper in London. Then it's totally hot gossip because everybody in town goes to check it out. Ogilvy's all like, please stop it. So they set up these guardrails and a guy called Stent comes along. Lord of Manor says it's okay. And now we're up to speed. Got it? This episode, we finally get a look at some Martians. And also, I have a lovely chat with the comedian Alistair Beckett King about folklore and what aliens look like in the past. I mean, what they look, people describe them looking at, like, you know what I mean? Like, not like, does he actually know, like, does he have an old photo? Because that's not, that's not what I mean. So let's get cracking. Make sure you've subscribed and please rate us five stars, because hey, why not? It helps get the word out. Here we are. Chapter four. The Cylinder Opens. When I returned to the common, the sun was setting. Scattered groups were hurrying from the direction of Woking, and one or two persons were returning. The crowd about the pit had increased, and stood out black against the lemon yellow of the sky. A couple of hundred people, perhaps. There were raised voices, and some sort of struggle appeared to be going on about the pit. Strange imaginings had passed through my mind. As I drew nearer, I heard Stent's voice. Keep back! Keep back! A boy came running towards me. This is the this is the literary equivalent what Wells has done of, of an extra. I need to paint the scene. I'll, uh, I'll I'll chuck some people in. It's a moving, he said to me as he passed. A screwing and a screwing out. I don't like it. I'm a going home. I am. I went on to the crowd. There were really, I should think. Two or three hundred people elbowing and jostling one another, the one or two ladies there being by no means the least active. So not only has he managed to write women in the only having a one one to a hundred ratio at best, he's also managed to slam on them saying they're being really rude. And also gaily dressed. He's fallen in the pit, cried someone. Kate back, said several. The crowd swayed a little, and I elbowed my way through. Everyone seemed greatly excited. I heard a peculiar humming sound from the pit. Christ's sake, said Ogilvy. Keep him back, we don't even know what it is. I saw a young man, a shop assistant in Woking, I believe he was, 
standing on the cylinder and trying to scramble out of the hole again. The crowd had pushed him in. The end of the cylinder was being screwed out from within. Nearly two feet of shining screw projected. Somebody blundered against me, and I narrowly missed being pitched onto the top of the screw. I turned, and as I did so, the screw must have come out, for the lid of the cylinder fell upon the gravel with a ringing concussion. I struck my elbow into the person behind me. You know, I'm no stranger to being in, in crowded cases, so I, I really, I really uh, empathise with the narrator at this point. Don't mean to brag, seem like a cool, trendy boy, but I've been to a few of those musical concerts that you talk about. And uh, one time I was, uh, I was, I was standing uh, to see a band or an arena, and you know, you, you expect a little bit of jostling, don't you? You expect a little bit of a crowd when you're standing. But there was this guy who was like po sort of poking me in the back, and I don't know if he was doing like a thing where somebody's like prodding you to try and get you to move out of the way or something. I sort of put up with it for a bit, and then it got, it got. I just couldn't hack it anymore. It's just like constant, constant prod, right? in my lower back so i turned around but both of his hands were were in the air both hands in the air uh so i just i, I just immediately i just sort of thought I'll, I'll i'll get out i'll get out of the way i'll get out of the way didn't didn't want to be poked by that anybody's trying to guess what it was it was his boner boner and turned my head towards the thing again for a moment, that circular cavity seemed perfectly black. I had the sunset in my eyes. I think everyone expected to see a man emerge, possibly something a little unlike us terrestrial men, 
but in all essentials a man. I know I did. But, looking, I presently saw something stirring within the shadow. Greyish, billowy movement. Hello, it's me, the explaining lad. Uh, I've just taken a break from uh, university. We've been uh, chugging down the, the, the shots. Wee-oh, lad, 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 I just wanted to say billowy, it's like, um, it's describing the movement, uh, cause billows are a thing that you use to fan fire, you know those sort of pump things that they used to in olden days, used for fire, well it's like, it's like that, but it's, uh, it's, it's sort of the, the, uh, the, 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 the wind, the sort of gust. Alright, see you later, blood, 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 blood. One above another, and then two luminous discs like eyes. Then something resembling a little grey snake about the thickness of a walking stick, coiled up out of the writhing middle, and wriggled in the air towards me. And then another. Oh boy, oh boy, we're seeing a Martian! Only been four chapters! A sudden chill came over me. There was a loud shriek from a woman behind. I half turned, keeping my eyes fixed upon the cylinder still from which other tentacles were now projecting, and began pushing my way back from the edge of the pit. I saw astonishment giving place to horror on the faces of the people about me. I heard inarticulate exclamations from all sides. That's my inarticulate exclamations for the recording, uh, so enjoy those guys. There was a general movement backwards. I saw the shopman struggling still on the edge of the pit. I found myself alone, and saw the people on the other side of the pit running off, stent among them. I'm getting out of here, bye. I looked again at the cylinder. An ungovernable terror gripped me. I stood petrified and staring. A big, greyish, rounded bulk. The size, perhaps, of a bear, was rising slowly and painfully out of the cylinder. As it bulged up and caught the light, it glistened like wet leather. You know what? Credit to him. Sometimes, sometimes you think, like, he's very matter-of-fact in the way he writes, but this is... Oh, I'm kissing my fingers. This is really beautiful. And, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it here. I think this, I think this H.G. Wells lad, I think he's... Uh, I think he should carry on with the writing. I think he's onto something here. Two large, dark-coloured eyes were regarding me steadfastly. The mass that framed them, the head of the thing, was rounded and had, one might say, a face. Dun, dun, dun. There was a mouth under the eyes, the lipless brim of which quivered and panted and dropped saliva. The whole creature heaved and pulsated convulsively. A lank tentacular appendage gripped the side of the cylinder. Another swayed in the air. Fucking hell. I mean, this is... I'm going to take a deep breath because this is a long... This is a long paragraph here. Those who have never seen a living Martian can scarcely imagine the strange horror of its appearance. The peculiar V-shaped mouth with its pointed upper lip. The absence of brow ridges. The absence of a chin beneath the wedge-like lower lip. The incessant quivering of this mouth. The Gorgon group of tentacles. Uh, all right, lads.
lads, I'll come back. Sorry, rugby social. I'll come back. It's just the Gorgons. They're like a creature. They're mythology, aren't they? You know, they've got snakes all up in their hair. And if, if you catch them, if you like, look in their eyes, you turn stone. All right, see you later. The tumultuous breathing of the lungs in a strange atmosphere. The evident heaviness and painfulness of movement due to the greater gravitational energy of the Earth. Above all, the extraordinary intensity of the immense eyes were at once vital, intense, inhuman, crippled, and monstrous. There was something fungoid in the oily brown skin, something in the clumsy deliberation of the tedious movements unspeakably nasty. Even at this first encounter, this first glimpse, I was overcome with disgust and dread. So this, uh, I mean, whew, he's laying it on thick, isn't he? Like, what are all the things that we hate about people? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. You know, what I hate is uh, lower lips. I hate pointy upper lips. Uh, if, if something's got brow ridges, I'm really keen on it. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, but if you don't have brow ridges and you have the temerity not to own a chin, you can get the fuck out. Uh, but it got me thinking, like, this is a very visual description uh more so than anything else he's described in the book so far and it's like where do you get this where did he get the idea from i mean like you know we've got snake-like stuff we've got the size of a bear so obviously he's been to the zoo we're <laughs> not an idiot but is there anywhere in folklore or like in, in in previous literature that uh that describes aliens and talks about aliens so i got in touch with my friend uh alistair beckett king he's one half of an excellent podcast called lawman with james shakeshaft uh to, to to just ask him what the hell he thinks he knows about extraterrestrial life thank you very much for joining me uh thank for you for inviting me you're most welcome uh i well I, as you know i'm doing a podcast as i read war of the worlds and i sort of read it and then i spiral out on tangents and i ask ask people who know much more about areas than i do uh, for their help with it uh, so thank you for helping me <laughs> well, I, well I, d I should jump in and say I don't claim to have any particular knowledge, but I oh, do. Oh no, have, no, no! I do have my own podcast, so yes, <laughs> well, know, that's got to count for something. I wanted to have a quick chat uh, with your with your sort of well more more expertise than me on law law stuff about and stuff of law L O R E not L A W. I mean, maybe you are as well, but I yeah, I am a trained barrister. Oh well, both no, double no, whammy. No, 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 oh shit. <laughs> Surname, so I thought I could probably blag it. One thing that I've wondered whilst reading um, War of the Worlds uh, is about where he got the idea for the aliens from. Now, mm. I know that there is like there is lines of colonial invasion in there and there is stuff about like he had a chat about with his brother and that's where the idea came from when he was on Horsell Common. Like, oh, what if something came from the sky? And there was astronomy then and all that. But so the idea of like the story of having an alien i guess and also how it looks and why he he came up with that idea what stories did did he have to work off of mm. it's it, it's an interesting one isn't it because it's fairly early science fiction yeah i mean yeah. there's um there's people traveling to the moon in uh, in the 18th century yeah. On like boats and stuff like that. The planets as being places you can go to has been around for a little while. They're not always thought of as just flat disks that are above the Earth. Yeah, sure. Um, I read I read The Man in the Moon, um, the the 16th century one. And that's great. It's just a bloke who trains a bunch of geese and <laughs> flies to the moon. <laughs> it's amazing. I was also thinking of um, uh, William Blake has a, a sort of a satirical prose poem, uh, 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 which is just like a tea party on the moon. Yeah, with uh, some some mad old people and uh, and I think a cat called Nanny Cantypot. 
great. But, or maybe not a cat. I can't remember. But Nanny Cantipot's a good name. I love the, the moon. Seems to be like people seem to be in stories for the moon. Really love it. You, you know, like no, nobody talks about bad things from the moon. People go to the moon. They have the best time in the world, and then they come home. Everything yeah, seems uh, great uh, about it. it. Well, um, I guess Melies's journey to the moon does have those pointy-headed sort of oh, um, sure. schnapps yeah. monsters, but yeah, yeah, yeah. still, they're still having, still having top larks. <laughs> yeah, on the lark scale, it's it's up there. It's a four oh, to yeah, five. Yeah. It's it's a six out of seven. <laughs> seven being the maximum. Yeah, of course. Well, it's Melies. They didn't invent ten at that point. <laughs> <laughs> the earliest stuff that we we seem to got is now. I I did think. Oh, Egyptians, they're aliens, innit? But it's not. Um, or it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might that be. That's the best opening paragraph to a book I've ever read. <laughs> yeah, that's my... You, uh... might, you might think Egyptians, ah, they're aliens, innit? But it's not. That's my that's my PhD paper. Uh, I got I spent years getting all the funding available for it, and then that was it. It was two paragraphs, not even that. I was like, ah. chapter one, aliens? Question mark. Chapter two, it's not. So the the idea of Egyptians with UFOs came a lot later. Really, that was more of a revisionist history than yes. Um, I think I think most of the most of the takes on these historical phenomena as aliens or uh, extraterrestrial UFOs, I think most of them are revisionist because I don't think the concept existed. Until, no, yeah. Uh, well, probably the twentieth century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, well, I mean, I say you're right. I have no I have no evidence to to disprove or prove what you've said. So I'm just going to agree with you on good faith. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be trying to cover things up now, would I? <laughs> The Vimana are, uh, like ancient Egypt, they're one of the things that, um, you know, 14 times and so forth are interested in. They were um, mythical um, chariots or indeed palaces or towers uh, uh, seem to appear in the sky. And th- they come from uh, a Hindu mythology. Yeah. It's, it's and they certainly have a, if you look at the image of them, they certainly have a fantastical, glowing, ethereal, spaceshipy quality to them. I mean, it is it is very much like a it's it's a thing that floats though, in it. I am really keen on them, but and I, I'm saying this as if the Vimana are going to be listening and are going to be furious <laughs> <laughs> when they hear me. But it's not aliens. It's it's pretty clear. It's like, hey, you know, uh, you know how birds fly? Yeah. Imagine if a house did that. Whoa, Daddy, we got a book. Uh, that yeah. seems to be kind of it. Uh, and in in England, we had. Um much smaller scale, of course. We had uh, G- Gabriel's Hounds in the north of England, who oh, right. were um, dogs, uh, but possibly the spirits of unbaptized children, because it was awful being an unbaptized child who died of in course. the olden days. You went straight to hell, or you became a Gabriel Hound, <laughs> and they would hunt their prey across the skies and would be seen or heard barking a, 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 in their astral field. Amazing. Amazing. That's, it couldn't just be a magpie. No, it's got to be Gabriel's nope. Hound. I mean, you, you might say, is that just the sound of dogs barking in the distance? I say, no, it's Gabriel's hound. <laughs> oh, amazing. Gabriel's hound. I'm all for that. As an unbaptized child myself, uh, I look forward to when I become a Gabriel's hound. I also am an un- unbaptized child, so let's hope there isn't uh, some kind of uh, lightning strike that kills both of us during the <laughs> podcast. Well, maybe. We are both connected <laughs> tenuously <laughs> via electricity. Yeah, I think if it, were the, if it were a film in the 80s, I think that would be valid, that yeah. a, lect- a lightning strike would hit both of us. After War of the Worlds, there was loads more, like an explosion in the idea of aliens and aliens coming mm. from space, and people seeing aliens, especially in the 50s, uh, with pi- well, not just the 50s, the 40s as well. 
probably more the 40s, as there was a war which meant people were in the sky as pilots. Mm. Um, and subsequently a Cold War where people prob- probably were testing aircraft yeah, I mean, over that- civilian areas in secret and not saying anything about it. That probably was happening. I think what, what, we, what you see in the 20th century when people start spotting UFOs and all those sorts of things, I am a sceptic. I, I think aliens probably do exist somewhere in a giant universe. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that they just keep coming to our planet and poking us uh, in the ways that people imagine they are. Um, and uh, I think there probably aren't any supernatural creatures or, uh, or gods doing weird glowy things. But there are so many accounts of this happening that these sorts of things happening, being sightings and encounters, that they obviously, it seems clear to me that there must be a real phenomenon or real phenomena that underpin this. And I don't know what they are, whether they're psychological phenomena or whether they're meteorological or whether things like the Northern Lights, whether there are just phenomena I don't know about that, that cause these things. But it's obvious that something really happens and these stories whatever they may be, maybe in the 20th century it might be aliens, in another century it might be gods or uh, supernatural bi- diabolical creatures. There must be something that's that's the, the beginning point for these stories. Like the Martians in particular, the way that H.G. Wells talks about them, it's it's not really like, you can't, re- it doesn't look like, they don't look like humans, they deliberately don't look like humans, and they don't look like, they're not like a big pig, uh, as we know is is a famous recurring character of folklore in Britain. <laughs> um, th- and it's it's not anything. There's no connection to the earth with it, and there's also no spiritual connection, and that makes sense then because he was never a big fan of. He's deliberately outspoken about religion. Like later in the book, um, he's very scathing of the of the curate. I feel like I feel like Jeff Wayne does a real solid to the religious community by having <laughs> Phil Linnet be uh be the priest rather than just this annoying curate who's a bit upset that he's locked in this house with a journalist which to be <laughs> fair anyone would be uh <laughs> you're stuck with this 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 guy who upon hearing that something crash lands in a common decides oh, i'll go check it out why <laughs> you, what you're not even writing for the paper with this uh um anyway but it makes sense that he would he would deliberately go and try and make the martians look as something unearthly as possible mm. um because he does a lot of like um so he studied under thomas huxley um and so a lot of his biological study was on evolution so that because that was the thing that i was trying to I, I was wondering like he must have based this from somewhere on something but actually no it makes perfect sense that he would he would just completely make something up as much as he could yeah the sort of the, the folk equivalents are all sort of uh, chimeras or chimeras. Yeah, I yeah, pronounce yeah. That. So we'll stick <laughs> the head of one thing on the body of another thing, and um, it's a huge, it's a whole lot of fun. But it's very different from saying, "All right, well, we're 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 primates. So what would uh, what would a reptile look like if it were? Yeah, if we were, you know, if we were to give it a bigger brain and uh, tentacles or whatever." So he he wrote a book later on. Um, he wrote papers later on about what he thought Martians would actually look like. Um, and it's a lot more like the, um, the, the, the called like the Roswell Greys. Um, mm. So that sort of big eyes, sort of human, but kind of not. Um, but basically like, ah, they've probably got the same stuff as us. Mm. Well, I guess yeah, the, the Mars's gravity is less, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so they're always skin, often skinnier and taller. I don't actually know if it's useful to be much taller than us, even if the gravity is less. What are you doing up there? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't Maybe know. it's relative to their trees. I don't know. <laughs> their trees yeah, are a little bit bigger. They need to be a bit bigger. Al- Alistair, uh, this is this has been great. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. This has been really fun. Suddenly, the monster vanished. It had toppled over the brim of the cylinder and fallen into the pit, with a thud like the fall of a great mass of leather. I heard it give a peculiar thick cry, and forthwith a number of these creatures appeared darkly in the deep shadow of the aperture. I turned, and, running madly, made for the first group of trees, perhaps a hundred yards away, but I ran slantingly and stumbling, for I could not avert my face away from these things. There, among some young pine trees and firs bushes, I stopped, panting, and awaited further developments. The common round the sand pits was dotted with people, standing like myself in a half-fascinated terror, staring at these creatures, or rather at the heaped gravel at the edge of the pit in which they lay. And then, with a renewed horror, I saw a round, black object bobbing up and down on the edge of the pit. It was the head of the shopman who had fallen in, but showing as a little black object against the hot western sun. Now he got his shoulder and knee up, and again he seemed to slip back until only his head was visible. Suddenly he vanished, and I could have fancied a faint shriek had reached me. I had a momentary impulse to go back and help him, but my fears overruled. He's not hes not the most endearing character I've ever seen. So, I mean, he was trying to learn a bike at the age of, what, I'm going to assume at least 30. So he can't, he can't ride a bike, which is fine. We're not going to hold it against him, but I am going to keep it in my thoughts. And then the the one chance he has to be a hero to try and save someone from a pit, he doesn't do it. He's elbowed he's elbowed his common man in the stomach, he's moaned about the women, and now he won't even save somebody who's about to get killed. Everything was quite invisible, hidden by the deep pit and the heap of sand that the fall of the cylinder had made. Anyone coming along the road from Chobham or Woking would have been amazed at the sight. A dwindling multitude of perhaps a hundred people or more, standing in a great irregular circle, in ditches, behind bushes, behind gates and hedges, saying little to one another and then in short excited shouts, and staring, staring hard at a few heaps of sand. The barrel of ginger beer stood, a queer derelict, black against the burning sky. I for one am really relieved that the ginger beer stand was still there. That's a testament to our times, you know, you can can take away the people, but Enterprise is here to stay. Thank God. And in the sandpit was a row of deserted vehicles, with their horses feeding out of nose bags or pouring the ground. For me, I think if you were going to end it anywhere, you'd definitely just talk about horses feeding out of a bag. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but whew, what a chapter. The handbrakes are off and we're rolling, baby. Please, somebody stop my baby. The handbrake is off the pram. So we've got an alien. I do feel pretty shit for the shopkeeper's boy. I mean, he, he's just an innocent, innocent victim in all this. But I'll brace myself for the good of the podcast and carry on. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Uh, it helps get the word out. And why not share with good friends and foe alike on your social media? Also, before we roll the credits, um, I'm going to be taking a short, short break from chapters of The War of the Worlds for a week or two. Uh, the reason is, I've had a baby. Ah, well, my, my wife has, not me. But I've really become invested in them over the time we've spent together. I don't want to have to rush through a chapter in order to get it out in time and, and raise the wee one at the same time. But don't worry, fear not! There'll be some smaller snippets of bits and bobs and some extra material that I wanted to put into the show but couldn't find time in the first few chapters. Uh, There'll also be some of my musical comedy songs, uh, which are unrelated to War of the
other worlds, so you don't have to suffer from ones that are solely inspired by the book. All right, see you next week. Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created by Eddie Hurst, written by H.G. Wells and Eddie Hurst. Special thanks this week to Alistair Beckett-King. He's very funny in real life and on Twitter, at MrABK. And his podcast, Lawman, is a real treat, and I'd urge you in the strongest terms to listen to it. Thanks again for Hannah Platt for reprising the role of Ogilvy the astronomer, and also a big thank you to Matt Hoss for editing expertise on the chat with ABK. Is he on Twitter? Yes! At Matt Hoss Comedy. Does he have a podcast? Yes, many. Go listen to him. Please rate, subscribe, and share on social media, and see you next week. Thanks, bye!